friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Hello, Tomb Believers. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I'm James Hickson, and across from me, the handsome hunk of man is Mr. Trey Lawson. Hello, everybody. <laughs> hey. How you doing, Trey? I am doing well. Um, I am looking forward to talking about these comics we've got this time because it is a very weird mix it's very different from what we had last episode i think even though just reading story titles yeah you'd expect it to be very so, similar we have a odd bunch of comics this time around we have two retro issues silver surfer volume one number seven from 1968 and incredible hulk 134 from 1970 as well as marvel spotlight number eight and fear number 12 both from 1972 yeah, and I think sort of what we're thinking here is is we're pulling in some of these retro issues as we come across them and trying to work them in in places that feel thematically relevant. For those of you following our social media, you'll know that this is actually our second episode of the month we're calling Frankuary. And why is that, Trey? Um, so uh, we, we've finally arrived at the Monster of Frankenstein book, one of the... Uh, sort of core titles of classic Marvel horror of the 70s. Um, and so we'll be talking a lot about that book this month. But um, this episode, we actually don't have an issue of Monster of Frankenstein. That's part of why we're bringing in the retro comics, because that first Silver Surfer issue is titled The right, Heir so of we Frankenstein. Look forward to seeing a flat-top, neck-bolted monstrosity, right? I mean, sort of. We'll talk about it when we get there. All right, guys, we're going to go to a quick break, and we'll be right back with Silver Surfer, Volume 1, Number 7, The Heir of Frankenstein. Mr. Surfer, have you ever considered propane as an alternative energy source for that board of yours? With a little retooling, I could get it to work. Tell you what I'm going to do. Being that you're my neighbor and I like you, I'm going to give you the new neighbor discount and a free T-shirt. So what do you say? Take a ride on the Cosmic Tide on an all-new Silver Surfer next as Fox Kids Heads for the Hills continues. Just think, with repeat business like that, I could eventually be supplying propane galaxy-wide. And we're back with Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Our first comic today is a retro issue, Silver Surfer, Volume 1, Number 7, the Heir of Frankenstein. We've got a cover date of August 1969, written by Stan the Man Lee, penciler John Bashima, inker Sal Bashima, letterer Sam Rosen, editor Stan Lee, cover artist John Bashima and Frank Brunner. Count Ludwig Frankenstein, the contemporary heir of the original Victor Frankenstein is working with Borgo, his obligatory hunchbacked assistant, to recreate his ancestors' experiments using modern technology. As he attempts to bring his monster to life, the local villagers are drawn to the castle by the unusual lightning. 
Realizing what Frankenstein is up to, they storm the castle. The castle defenses hold, but in his anger, Frankenstein decides to activate Experiment X, although he will need an incredibly powerful subject for it to work. At precisely that moment, the Silver Surfer is flying through the Alps and sees the villagers attacking the castle. Believing the villagers to be the villains, the Surfer drives them away with cosmic blasts. Count Frankenstein welcomes him into the castle, but the Surfer, having gone through this once before with Doctor Doom, is suspicious. He leaves for the cosmos, where he can pine for his lost love, Shalabal. Frankenstein and Borgo activate a beacon so powerful that the Surfer can see it from space, and out of curiosity the Surfer follows it to its source. Count Frankenstein tells the Surfer that his experimental ray has the potential to end all war and hatred on Earth, if only it could be tested on a being powerful enough to withstand it. The Surfer agrees, but only after surrounding himself with a protective aura. Frankenstein's ray begins draining the cosmic energy from the Surfer and directs it into a clay model. The model assumes the form and powers of the Silver Surfer, but before the process is, com is complete, the real Surfer breaks free of the ray and interrupts the experiment. Frankenstein sends his false Surfer to attack the villagers, and the real Surfer follows. Throughout the fight, the real Surfer encourages the villagers to be brave and to fight back against Count Frankenstein. They storm the castle once again, but this time they have an ally inside the castle. Borgo, plagued by conscience and angry at a lifetime of insults from his master, shoves Frankenstein through the castle window and the two of them fall to their deaths. The fight between the two Surfers takes them into space and back to Earth, but neither is able to get the upper hand. Their fight is so intense that it draws a U.S. military response, although none can get close enough to see what is happening. The real Surfer takes the Franken-Surfer by, by the hand and refuses to let go, admitting that he would sacrifice his life to end that of the evil Surfer. The Franken-Surfer lacks that capacity for self-sacrifice and is driven entirely by his will to live, and in that moment, he begins to weaken. There is a massive explosion, leaving only the one true Silver Surfer, whom the armed forces immediately mistake as a threat and open fire. The Silver Surfer flees into space, where he can contemplate the cruel ironies of his existence. So you left out the best scene in this comic. <laughs> I was trying to stick to things that were relevant to the plot. And there's a good bit that happens in this comic that isn't really relevant to no, the plot. No, but the best scene in this comic, and I think you know... Are we are, are we talking about the we're rabbit? We're talking about the rabbit, yeah. Where Frankenstein and um, Torgo... No, not Torgo. Uh, Bor it's Borgo. 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 Torgo, Torgo is Manus the Hands of Fate. Right. The master would not be pleased. Um, <laughs> switches the brain of a feral wolf and a little bunny rabbit. So, if you've ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the result is kind of like that. That rabbit's dynamite! <laughs> it's... it's I, I'm like, why is this scene here? It has nothing to do with the plot. So, so uh, all I can suggest is that it's a demonstration that what the Ray does 
is it takes the essence of one thing and moves it to another thing. So it takes the essence of the wolf, the aggression and power of the wolf, and transfers it into the bunny. Also known as Axe Body Spray. <laughs> and, and, and so, it's sort of a leap, but from there we get transferring the cosmic energy of the Silver Surfer into the lump of clay. It's a little bit of a leap. It's a big leap. It, it's, it, yeah. Um, I did also leave out the only time we see an actual Frankenstein's monster in this comic, which is when um, Ludwig Frankenstein watches the home movies of his ancestor. Home movies um, be- that should not exist. Right, because obviously back in, what, the, were what, late 1700s late, or late 1800s? Late 1700s. Yeah, they, they made home movies back then, right? On, on, on reels of film. Yep. And like, I... but 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 we do get for those few panels a classic flat top neck bolted Karloff Frankenstein's monster. Exactly, and I guess you can no prize it saying that these are other descendants of Frankenstein and their experiments, because this is definitely not the Frankenstein we see in Monster Frankenstein last episode. Right. Yeah. This is a. This is totally different in appearance, in origin. Age? Um, it doesn't match. Yeah. It, it doesn't match at all. And obviously this comes earlier than the Monster of Frankenstein issue that we wa- that we talked about last episode. Yeah, but I'm just like, okay, he's... Uh- it's, honestly, it's honestly closer to the Frankenstein's monster in the X-Men issue. I will say, visually, there, there's a really neat montage at the bottom of page 17, um, where Dr. Frankenstein is, like, assembling his his ray equipment. Right. His sci-fi that, tech. Yeah, so we've got, like, the background uh, that's full color of Frankenstein and Borgo, but then at the bottom of the panel, there's like all of these smaller images of him doing various like inventory things. Yeah, and I I really like those. Like visually, that's a cool look. It 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 is, and I like the sci-fi machines that we see here. But yeah. and I actually like the beacon he creates later. It's huge and sci-fi and really not practical at all, but I love it. Yeah, and it looks like he's having to, like, straddle it in order to activate it. Like, the buttons are not in easy-to-reach places. No. No. <laughs> okay. I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say this. In preparing for this episode, before I even read the issue, I skimmed through um, the, the Marvel Wiki on it just to see what to expect. And they referred to Ludwig Frankenstein's creation as the Cosmic Frankenstein. Right? And I was really excited about the idea of a cosmic-powered Frankenstein's monster. Yes. They they could have just said, clone of the Silver Surfer. Yep. Because that's what he is. He is a clone of the Silver Surfer. There's really nothing here that qualifies him as a Frankenstein monster, except no. that the guy who created him is Frankenstein, but he's not really even a monster. He's a clone of the silver surfer. So unless you're defining, and and in fact, it is, it is fairly important to the plot several times 
that he is he is visually identical. Exactly. Unless you are saying that the Silver Surfer is a monster, which I don't think Stan Lee would do. No. Considering he almost wants to put angelic prestige upon the surfer. I don't know if that's the right word. But But yeah, no, like like there there's a sense of the surfer as this elevated being who's above the the emotions and problems of humanity. Although let's talk about that part uh in the middle of the fight, I think on mm-hmm. page uh, 29. I think I know where you're headed. Is this where he victim shames the lady with the baby? Right! He victim... Okay. He says, No, no, whoever you are, whatever you may be, you must not battle here within this helpless village. We have done nothing. Nothing deserves such a fate. Perhaps that is why this fate is now yours. There are times even when doing nothing can be an ignoble act. Yeah, like... It's almost like he's accusing these villagers of being good Germans, but that does not actually apply to the situation at hand. Exactly. And the villagers, as we saw earlier in the issue, did try to kick out Frankenstein. And yeah, and the surfer repelled exactly. them. I'm like, hold up. You, don't, don't shame them. This is you. They tried to stop the Frankenstein, and you stopped them, bucko. Yep. And I, I have to say, I, I love I love Stan Lee. Um, he created some of the best superhero comics of all time. But sometimes his lesser output in terms of even major comics was pretty heavy handed. And this comic in particular, sometimes the prose was really heavy handed. And... The surfer's philosophizing, I don't even, for some reason, Stan loved the Silver Surfer. Mm-hmm. And, I, I mean, I get that the Silver Surfer is a cool visual. He is. And as a, like, powerhouse of the Marvel Universe, he's great there. I've never really gotten the appeal of the character. I now I've, I've not read a lot of Silver Surfer. I'll admit that. I've read his appearances of Fantastic Four up to where the Fantastic cast is right now, and I've seen him in the odd crossover, like with uh, Infinity Gauntlet and so forth. But I, first of all, I don't get why Silver Surfer is Stan's favorite. Stan didn't even create Silver Surfer, and let's be honest here: Stan did not create the Silver Surfer. Jack right. Kirby created the Silver Surfer because the summary of the issue where Silver Surfer first appeared that Stan gave Jack had no mention of the Silver Surfer, had no mention of a Herald of Galactus. It just mentioned Galactus coming to Earth and Jack Kirby threw in this Silver Surfer character. I I am fully willing to say Jack Kirby created the Silver Surfer. And so I, without being able to say for sure, my guess would be that the appeal of the Silver Surfer to Stan Lee as a writer was the idea of this cosmic, weary traveler allowing for more philosophical moments than your average action superhero. I think that's the idea. And so, like, if you notice, even this issue, like, you get lots of moments of the Surfer 
just sort of in space pondering his situation. Yeah. And 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 sometimes it works. Sometimes the heightened prose is, is interesting and effective, but sometimes it's not. And sometimes that prose ends up in other characters' mouths and it feels really weird. Like there is a panel on page 34, I think, where for no real reason we cut to the Kremlin where Russian officers are discussing what they assume are American space weapon tests. And and at the end of their discussion, they, one says to the other, perhaps the time is near when we both shall face some common enemy, or perhaps the day may come when no man will be called enemy. And like, first off, I don't think any Russian generals were saying that in the late 60s. Nope. And second, and second, it's really heavy-handed. Extremely heavy-handed. And I know there are people who adore the Silver Surfer, but I am really glad with this issue that we are not a Silver Surfer podcast. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be real with you for a minute. Aside from, I mean, aside from a handful of surfer comics that that are sort of vintage classic comics, the best take on the Silver Surfer that I've read was the Dan Slot run. I haven't read it. It's in my reading queue. You really should because his premise, and he makes no secret of this, but his premise was to take that philosophical, cosmic, weary traveler character. And be like, oh yeah, that's Doctor Who. Yeah, I, I've heard that, and that, that's one of the reasons I'm like, okay, I might actually read a Silver Surfer run. And again, it also it also has one of the best choicest word jokes that I have seen in a comic in a long time. Uh, because what what do, what is one of the Silver Surfer's catchphrases? What does he do to summon his his uh, flying surfboard? To me, my board. To me, my board. And so his companion decides that the board's name must be Toomey. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I I know people rag on Dan Slot, but I really enjoy his comics. That's brilliant, isn't it? it? Isn't it that is. brilliant? To me, to me, my board. <laughs> I love that. But, unfortunately, Dan Slot had nothing to do with this comic. Um... And so instead, what we have is some overblown prose, some really great visuals. The cosmic fight is great. Like, when the surfers are fighting in space. Yeah. Like, like the visuals are awesome. I wish I cared about the circumstances. Yeah, I don't think anybody could ever say that John Buscema was, you know, slacking off. But... No. As far as a Frankenstein comic, it leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah, there there was potential for something really cool visually with the idea of a cosmic Frankenstein's monster. Like, transferring the cosmic energy into something more monstrous could have been interesting. But but that's not what they nope. did. They, they certainly did not. And, I don't know, I, uh... I, I guess my favorite part of the whole issue <laughs> is early on when Frankenstein is first inviting the surfer into the castle 
And the surfer is like, uh-uh, I went through this with Doom already. Exactly. I love the callback to Doctor Doom. That was good. That was good stuff. Except then he falls for yep. it anyway. Exact same trick. Yep. So. Um, so, yeah, this... Unless you're just a Silver Surfer completionist or a Stanley devotee, uh, I don't see any real reason to track down this one issue. No. I mean, it's... And it doesn't even... I don't see how it has any bearing on the version of the Frankenstein family that we'll be reading about going forward because this is both the first and last appearance of Ludwig Frankenstein. Although apparently Gorgo comes back. You mean Borgo? I said that, right? All right, guys. We'll be right back with a fellow defender of the Silver Surfers, the Incredible Hulk, with Incredible Hulk Volume 1, 134, right after this message. A peaceful day in the honeycomb hideout is suddenly interrupted by... The Hulk! A big Hulk on big cereal! Honeycomb, you better come through! Brace yourself, Hulk! Honeycomb's big! It's got a big bite that tastes right! Big enough for Hulk! Just try it! Post honeycomb cereal big! A part of balanced breakfast! Hulk, go! Don't forget your honeycomb! Honeycomb big! Honey's got a big bite! Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Our second retro issue on this episode is Incredible Hulk, Volume 1, Number 164, Among Us Walks, The Golem. This is from December 1970. Writer is Rascally Roy Thomas. Penciler is Herb Trimpey. Inker is Sal Buscema. Letterer is Artie Simic. Editor is Stan Lee. And cover artist is Herb Trimpey. Our story begins in the fictional Balkan country of Morvania, where the Incredible Hulk comes upon a little girl Rachel near an idyllic mountain spring. Rather being f- afraid of the Green Goliath, however, Rachel believes that the giant is the answer to her parents' prayers and takes old Jay Jaws back to her family's cabin. Rachel's parents, Isaac and Rebecca, are revolutionaries against the evil dictator of Morvania, Valkov Draxen. As they are also Jewish, her father has told the girl the story of the Golem, the ancient guardian made of clay that would come to life in the Israelites' time of need. Instead of being overjoyed at the appearance of the gamma-powered former Avenger, however, the parents are terrified and chase the Hulk away. The Hulk takes refuge in an abandoned village that had been destroyed by Draxon a year before, and that is where the revolutionaries, led by Isaac, find him. Isaac has thought about his daughter's confusion of the Hulk with the legendary Gollum and begs the Hulk to become the defender of the people of Morvania, like the giant of old, but the Hulk refuses, saying he only wants to be left alone. Dejected, Isaac resolves that they must end the threat of Draxon that very night, unaware of a spy in their midst. The spy warns Draxon, who launches a surprise attack on Isaac and his cohorts, who are unprepared for the ferocity of Draxon's military might. Meanwhile, young Rachel finds the Hulk and begs the Jane Giant to intervene in the fight on her father's behalf. The Hulk initially refuses, but is moved by the little girl's tears to join the fight. 
With his gargantuan strength, the Hulk makes short work of Draxon's army and even Draxon's kick-ass mobile war tower. Draxon is killed in the resulting explosion, and Isaac tries to give the Hulk the Imperial Amulet, as law now dictates that by defeating the old leader, the Hulk must now become King of Morvania. Hulk responds to the battlefield coronation by crushing the amulet, leaving the Morvanians to contemplate a future with no more king, no more dictators. So, um, this one was a little bit of a letdown. Yeah, they did it to us again. Because this gets credited as the first appearance of the Golem. Who... But it's the right. flashback. It's a flashback. It's another thing where the actual creature who we are here for, because this being a Marvel horror podcast, the Golem, Golem, damn, I guess I'm doing that, is not actually in the comic. Because the way the right. cover states this, and the way it's advertised, I'm thinking, oh, cool. Uh, the Hulk's going to fight a Golem. Or at least, like have a misunderstanding with the golem and then team up with it exactly and that doesn't happen no it's it's basically a standard incredible hulk story just transposed into vaguely eastern europe right however i don't hate it no, it's a fine Hulk story. Um, it's got some good stuff in it. Um, the uh, I really enjoy the stereotypically over-the-top dictator villain. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely got some Adolf Hitler overtones in here, including the salute. Sure, but, but also, like, when he has his sort of... Uh, flashback of taking power or whatever and at the end of it he's like wait why am i telling you this you know it already he catches himself monologuing it is i mean he is over the top but he is a lot of fun actually yeah and we've got some fun like marvel tech that the bad guys right Okay, the war tower that Draxon bust out in the NS comic if you haven't seen it already i really i actually do encourage I actually do recommend this comic. It was a lot of fun. But yeah. it is some straight-up 1980s G.I. Joe battle tech. Like, Oh, yeah. I, I My note that I wrote down was that clearly Draxon orders from the same supplier as Cobra right. Commander. If you had this playset as a kid, it would cost 100 bucks, but you'd be the envy of every kid on your block. Yep. It it's is pretty cool. so cool, and I love it so much. And Hulk just busts the crap out of it. Yes, as Hulk is wont to do. Um, there there are some choice Incredible Hulk moments here that I really enjoyed. Um, there's one when he first uh, sort of starts helping the villagers, uh, and he sort of goes after the, uh, the soldiers in order to demand the location of Draxon. Um, there's this bit... Where and I'm trying to find the page now, which is why I'm stalling for time. Stalling for um, time. This is our stalling for time song. Listen to it go. Are you quite done yet? Cause I can't think of any more words. 
Um, so so he, he uh, emerges from the abandoned city, the, the ruins that he was hiding in, and, and he goes after Draxon's uh, scouts that were keeping an eye on him. And the very last panel of the page, it's the bottom of 17, it's the sort of thing that I would expect to see in a movie. It's an extreme long shot from the bottom of the cliff with Hulk on top of the cliff and the various soldiers... I guess being knocked over the cliff to the ground below, and Hulk is just screaming, where is Draxon? And it's awesome. And it's funny because Draxon was actually like, no, let's just leave the Hulk alone. Yes. Because apparently yes. they had an encounter in a previous issue, and Draxon realizes, oh, Hulk just wants to be left alone? Okay. Cool with me. Right. Oh, he wants to hang out in this old village I destroyed? Okay. I wasn't going to use it. And also, and I, maybe I just haven't read enough of this era of Incredible Hulk, but once he actually starts fighting, he is su- surprisingly strategic. This definitely seems like a smarter Hulk than I think I'm used to. And I, I, I will caveat that by saying the most recent Hulk I've read is his appearance in Avengers number two. So okay. it's definitely... And that's a different Hulk. That is a Hulk. very different Hulk. For one thing, that Hulk definitely has a much meaner streak in him. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not quite sure if the little girl had begged that Hulk to help, that the Hulk would have actually helped. No, th- that Hulk might have pulled a Boris Karloff and thrown the girl into the Speaking lake. of, <laughs> it's almost like that was a trained segue. Good job. Speaking of... On our first page, okay, when I was taking my notes, I first thought when he comes upon the girl in the, at the stream, this is a callback to the 1930s Frankenstein film. But I think as you right. correctly pointed out, it's actually a reference to an earlier film. Yeah, so, so there was a, a 1920s uh, German silent film. Um, it's actually part of a trilogy. Um, in, in the U.S., it was just released as uh, The Golem. Um, the, the German title was longer. Um, it's something like... Uh, uh, oh, yeah, it's uh, The Golem, How He Came Into the World. Now say it in German. Um, uh, no, thank you. It was a trilogy, and, and this the one that survives is actually the second part of the trilogy, but it was a prequel. So the one that exists is The Origin of the Golem. Um and uh, there, it was a pretty direct influence on the 1930s Frankenstein movie. And so you can sort of draw a line from cultural depictions of the golem to cultural depictions of Frankenstein to what's going on in this Hulk comic. Right. And I think, as you correctly stated, that, that Frankenstein took a lot of, at least visual cues from mm-hmm. that earlier German film, which is fine. I mean, Universal Films took a lot from that German school of filmmaking. Um, And it is worth noting also, um, so this issue was 1970. Um, There actually was a Golem movie made just a few years earlier, 1967. Um, It's not a good movie, but uh, Hammer Studios released, uh, in the U.S., I think it was just released as It. But but uh, it was a, a uh, 
horror film. I think the British title was something like Anger of the Golem or Curse of the Golem. And it features uh, a golem monster. Makes in sense. It. Not great, but but there, there is this sort of, for some reason, golems were coming up in, in popular culture again around this time. That's really interesting. And I'm wondering, is that... And I don't, again, we're not qualified to talk about this really. Is that a result of the Holocaust? I have no idea. It seems like a bit of a delayed reaction if it is. We really need Um, a more scholarly person than ourselves who can write into the show and give us some input on that because we are going to. Yeah. I mean, it it is notable. the, The German Golem films do all they're all weimar era so they they predate the rise of the nazi party um because that kind of movie was not going to get made in the 30s no but i definitely want somebody to write in and tell us a little bit more back history because there is going to be a point we we are talking about a golem comic book on this show right because and this is incredibly fascinating to me that both dc and marvel have versions of the golem based on the traditional Golem of Prague story. Yeah, and there's even a version of the Golem that shows up in Invaders in World War II. That's a yes. completely different character. Yes. Yeah, it, it's, it gets complicated. And that's when Marvel starts dealing in these sort of public domain characters like this. It does get complicated in part because different writers end up wanting to do their own spins on it. And they can, because anyone can do it. And I think that might still be Roy Thomas. Probably. He could very well have forgotten that he had done a a golem story already. Well, this is barely a golem story. Like we said, the golem only appears in flashback physically. And then, of course, the Hulk is like a metaphorical um, golem for the Morvanians. Moro, more... Right. What are they called again? Morovians? Uh, the the Morvanians. Morvanians. Okay, right. yeah. So, again, we got hoodwinked again. <laughs> but it does almost feel like it might be testing the waters. Yeah. You know, by, by introducing elements of the legend to, like, see if there's any interest. And also, I'm not that mad about it. No, using, because, because the Incredible Hulk, as a superhero character, is already fairly close to things like the Universal Monsters, it's not that big of a stretch to use him as a golem metaphor. No, and it's a honestly enjoyable issue. I've never really seen any Herb Trimpy artwork consciously before, and I really liked it here. His his take on the Hulk is really it's good. It's a little more handsome than I'm used to. In some of the close-ups especially. Um, it, it seems to change a little bit with the circumstances of the book. Like, once he is on the villager's side, it seems like his features become smoother. Interesting. Like, there, there's this one close-up on page 18... Uh, right as he's about to fight the sort of battle tank thing. And um, 
Like, that's the most handsome I've seen the Hulk look in a long time. Yeah. That is... That is handsome. That That's it. For the Hulk, especially. That, that Hulk's a good-looking fella. <laughs> but yeah, so, again, not quite the horror comic we expected it to be, but as an Incredible Hulk issue, this one is very good. It's... Silver Surfer failed both at being a horror comic and it kind of failed at being a Silver Surfer comic. This is this is a good it Hulk is. story. And it's just fun. I love the overtop villain. I love his war tower. I love I, I I like these little minor characters, the villagers, Isaac and Rachel and Rebecca that we meet here. Right. It it it's kind of doing this sort of World War Two occupation allegory, but in the context of Cold War yeah, politics. because it's never quite said that Draxon is getting his stuff from the Soviet Union, but he's getting it from the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. he'd have to be. Well, I mean, not that the U.S. did not prop up lots of dictators, Still. but in, in Eastern Europe, more likely it was Russia. Yep. But it's a fun comic. It was a interesting little comic drop in the middle of our little horror podcast um yeah i i look forward to actually meeting marvel's golem at some point in comics yeah our very from what i understand very brief meeting with him but yeah um so i i don't know that there's a whole lot more to be said about this issue other than we do recommend it, although not if you're looking for something particularly spooky. Or not if you're looking for an in-depth fictional analysis of the Gollum story. Right, yeah. Um, although, to be fair, the title is In the Shadow... or um, Well, it says Among Us Walks the Gollum. The cover, the cover says In the Shadow of the Gollum, which seems like a more appropriate title. Yep. Because the Hulk's sort of existence in this village is sort of in the shadow of that Gollum legend. Okay, I'm willing to talk about the cover for a second. Yeah. Is this cover just kind of boring? You know, I actually... It's not the most dynamic Hulk cover. I'll tell you what I like about it. Is that it's almost doing the classic um, Hulk transformation cover. Where you have Banner uh, at the bottom and then Hulk sort of looming behind him. But it's doing it with Hulk in the Banner position and the literal shadow of the golem sort of looming over him. Yeah, but you definitely get the impression from the cover he's about to fight a golem. Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, it also... I don't know. It's 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 not a great cover. I, I've seen worse, but it, it's not particularly dynamic. Or, or particularly informative about what's in the book. Nope. But, so, again, I but, didn't hate what was in the book, so yeah, there we go. good issue. I would, like, if I had gone in a comic shop and bought this issue, I would have been mad. I would not have been mad about it. Me neither. Okay. I think that does it for the Hulk. Yeah. Shall we move on to Marvel Spotlight? Yeah, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the ongoing adventures of Johnny Blaze in Marvel Spotlight. Evil Knievel, escape from Skull Canyon. Pretend the hairy monster has evil trapped in Skull Canyon, and evil's going to try and jump out. But there's a log across the road. Oh, just missed. Now you'll have to make evil crash through the boulders blocking the passage. You've done it. Evil triumphs again. 
Evil Knievel Escape from Skull Canyon figure, winder, and stunt cycle sold separately from Ideal. And we're back. You're listening to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And our next issue today is Marvel Spotlight number 8, The Hordes of Hell. Cover date, February 1973. Written by Gary Friedrich. Pencils by Mike Plug. Inker is Jim Mooney. Letters by Shelley Lefferman. Editor Roy Thomas. And the cover artist is Mike Plug. We open with Satan commanding Crash Simpson to raise his flaming sword against Johnny Blaze, the Ghost Rider. The Rider agrees to the challenge, but only if Roxanne goes free. At first, Roxanne tries to stop the fight, but she quickly realizes that her father is completely under Satan's control. Crash can't bring himself to attack while his daughter is in the way, and so Satan spirits the two combatants to hell, where Roxanne will not be able to interfere. Ghost Rider quickly gains the upper hand and disarms Crash, but Satan interferes by sending a demonic monster to restrain the Rider. Johnny Blaze tries to convince Crash to help him fight Satan, but Crash charges as though to attack him. However, at the last moment, he hesitates and instead slices through the demon holding Johnny. Crash repents and vows to help Johnny escape from Satan. A second monster is summoned, and Crash quickly slays it, but in its death throes, it kills Crash as well. With his dying breath, Crash implores Johnny to go on living for Roxanne's sake. A hooded stranger appears and offers Ghost Rider passage out of hell, but only if he has faith. He places Crash's body on this messenger's altar, and immediately, Johnny begins to fade away. He awakens in his human form with Roxanne waiting for him, and finds that she only remembers the evening's events as a dream. They return to Madison Square Garden and prepare to leave the city for their next set of performances. They soon land in Arizona, where Johnny meets up with Sam Silvercloud to discuss a canyon jump he is planning. Sam reveals that he opposes the jump because it could jeopardize his tribe's lawsuit against the government's over-ownership of the land. Blaze refuses to back down, and so Sam tries to strand him in the desert. Somehow, Johnny is able to grab the back of the truck as it speeds away, and he rides his motorcycle out of the back of the truck. Blaze arrives at the, at the rodeo, only to find the local manager is no more excited about his stunt show than Sam Silvercloud was. However, the rodeo manager also warns Johnny about a Native American medicine man called Snake Dance. Johnny cuts off the conversation when he recognizes Sam nearby and attacks him for the attempted abandonment. Mid-fight, Sam freezes, apparently due to the powers of Snake Dance. The medicine man warns Blaze to stay away from the canyon or else, and then he disappears. While Johnny prepares to take another look at the canyon, Sam sneaks into the garage and begins tampering with Johnny's motorcycle. Blaze rides out to the canyon, and as the sun sets, he transforms into the Ghost Rider while encountering a series of artifacts along the way. Ghost Rider is soon attacked by Snake Dance and his Serpent Men. The Rider's demonic powers scare away the Serpent Men, but Snake Dance is unfazed. Suddenly, Ghost Rider appears to be covered in snakes, but he is able to overcome the illusion. Snake Dance then transforms into a giant snake monster, 
and it begins pursuit of Ghost Rider's bike. Desperate to escape, Ghost Rider attempts to jump the canyon, but at that moment, Sam's sabotage takes effect, and the motorcycle explodes in midair, and Ghost Rider begins falling toward the canyon floor. So, it's like we just read two different comics here. Yes, yes. I got, I, I, in sort of putting together my summary for this one, I got to the point where they go back to Madison Square Garden, and I was like, wait, what? There's more? Well, I knew there was more because, again, there's this Native American on the cover, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure there wasn't a Native American in hell when we left off in a cliffhanger. Right, Which, right, fair. It se- I'm sorry, it seems like this first half of the issue needed to be its own comic. Absolutely. Absolutely it did. They could have spent a whole issue with the stuff in hell. Exactly. You could have gotten some really like weird, trippy imagery of hell, and all of a sudden it becomes a western comic. I'm like... Right. Because Ghost Rider. I mean, I get that. Ghost Rider historically is a western title... And so I understand wanting to try and work that in in some way, but maybe save that for its own issue. And I and I get where they're coming from. This Evil Knievel's jump on of Grand Canyon was a huge deal, like a huge yes. media deal. So yes. it makes sense they would kind of play off of that here. The Native American stuff, and again, this is coming from a modern perspective. It's. It, it, it's kind of cringy. It's it's a weird idea for a story. Like, Ghost Rider versus Native Americans fighting over the land that was stolen from them. And um, this... That, that it's either going to resolve in a very special issue, or things are going to get real awkward real fast. Now, historically, this is only about a year or so after the occupation of Alcatraz which right. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or our listeners are familiar with that. That's when various Native American tribes took over the island of Alcatraz after it was decommissioned as a prison and declared it um, Native American territory, land that, had been, that was being reclaimed from the American government. Mm-hmm. So native american land rights were very much in the spotlight at this time but having your protagonist as this white dude who well that's not my problem well through it all and to make to make the native americans trying who are trying to reclaim some small piece of what they lost into the bad guys yep that's it's just weird also, why are they dressed in native garb? Right. Now, Snake Dance maybe because his whole deal is being like a mystic medicine man type. I guess I can maybe allow that, but like why the rest of them? Yeah. And to go back to the first half of the issue, which honestly is the good part of the issue. True. The whole fight in hell is really cool. Yeah. And when I say really cool, it's basically a meatloaf album cover. Exactly. And, like, I was like, okay, this is what I'm here for. This is what I was promised at the end of last issue, and I am here for it. And you know where things go off the rails? When the cloaked figure shows up? 
No. that I was still down with that. Like, that could have gone to some cool places. Things go off the rails when they go to Madison Square Garden again, and Slade is there. And I'm like, I forgot he was a character. <laughs> Although, before you get to Slade for a second, I will point out, I will make mention of the fact that when the hooded figure shows up and tells Ghost Rider he has to have faith, you know what's popped mm-hmm. up in my head? What's that? I've got faith. Of the heart. <laughs> no one's gonna bend or break me. I got... <laughs> Thank you, James. Now I'm going to have the theme song for the worst Star Trek series stuck in my head. That's not a theme song to Discovery. I, we disagree on that show. I really... <laughs> I, I tried watching. I tried watching the first episode of season two last night, and I'm just... I still haven't... I haven't started season two yet. I'm like... Okay, the aesthetic is a little bit better, but I'm still bored. See, I don't see how you found any of it boring. It was my favorite Trek since Deep Space Nine. The characters are completely uninteresting. Like, That's not I true. have no investment whatsoever in those characters. I, I don't... It's hard for me to respond to that because I do. You know, like, I, I don't know how to explain why I would be and you wouldn't be. I mean, you know? it's the same token, like, I like the Orville, and you don't like the Orville. Sure. Fair. Anyway, Slade. Right. I mean, next time on Tomb of Ideas, a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> oh, we're going to get to some Star Trek issues eventually. This is true. This is true. Um, but, yeah, so, who is Slade again? It's, he's um, their manager. Right, yeah. No. But, like, that's the thing, is them having a performance in Madison Square Garden feels like it was such a long time ago. Yeah. And 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 then they jump from Madison Square Garden all the way out to Arizona, which is a weird tour route. <sighs> it is. And it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Oh, yeah, I'm going to jump a canyon. But, but he even says that's not affiliated with, like, the stunt show. That's just him doing it on his own. Well, you know, some people got hobbies, man. He jumps canyons. <laughs> so, but yeah, that to me, that's where the comic started to lose me, was when, when the real world intruded on this really cool horror fantasy story, it, it suddenly felt less interesting. Yeah, a lot less interesting. Especially because Roxanne wakes up and doesn't remember anything that happened, which basically means it can't come up again. Like, there's no way to move that story forward with the two of them because she doesn't remember it. Also, okay, Roxanne's just like, I'm just going to go off and leave while you go to hell with my father's soul. Wasn't Roxanne supposed to be guarded by some cultists? Not at this point. I think, if I remember, and I, I didn't look back at the previous issue, but I think that last panel, all that was left was Ghost Rider and Crash and Satan. And Roxanne at, at the altar or whatever. Okay. Because... I think. I don't know. If I was a cultist, I would stick around and watch that. Because <laughs> that... Hold up. We got a, we got an old guy in a Speedo with a flaming sword, and we got a guy with a flaming skull... I just feel I like I watch this. Pop me some popcorn. I just feel like the cultist, like as soon as actual literal Satan appeared, they would be like, "Oh crap! I didn't, I didn't expect any of this to actually be real." Yep, that 
that's it's. <laughs> but anyway, um, the that first half is a really good conclusion to that story. It's the ending that, that I think we wanted from where the last issue left off. Unfortunately, it stops roughly halfway through the issue. Yep. And then we get some racially insensitive stuff with Native Americans. Right. And that's just, it's let, it is not only uncomfortable, but it's also just not very good. Nope. Like, even setting aside the, the racial component, just in terms of storytelling, it's it's a boring story. Although, if we want to talk about uncomfortable... Who oh boy. We'll be right back with Adventures Into Fear number... 12? 12. No <laughs> Choice of Colors. After this message. Outside Lego City, the crooks are hiding in a swamp. <laughs> now they're getting away. But the police will catch them. You can lock them up in the new Swamp Police Station. Hey! You can build the Swamp Police Station and put them in prison. But the crooks are breaking out. Start the chase and catch the crooks. The new Lego City Swamp Police Collection. Each set sold separately. Base plates and background models not included. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Next up on the show, the last comic we're covering this evening is Adventure into Fear number 12, No Choice of Colors. Cover date is February 1973. Writer is Steve Gerber. Penciler is Jim Starlin. Inker is Rich Buckler. Letter, John Costanza. Editor is Roy Thomas. Cover artist is Jim Starlin and Frank Giacoya. The creature known as Man-Thing watches as two cars race through his Everglades home. Reaching a dead end, the first car stops and a young black man, Mark Jackson, exits the car, running into the swamp on foot. He is followed closely behind by the white Sheriff Corley. Corley draws his weapon, fires, and manages to wing Jackson in the shoulder. Jackson takes one last desperate chance diving into the depths of the swamp to escape the sheriff and pulls himself onto the bank some distance away before falling into unconsciousness. Man-Thing finds Jackson and through some long-forgotten memory of a past life tends to the man's wounds, even crafting a sling from a torn shirt. Jackson wakes and though initially afraid of his rescuer, he realizes the creature's non-violent nature and eventually comes to tell the creature his story. Jackson grew up as one of the poor black citizens of Topeka, Florida, living under the thumb of the racist Sheriff Corley and hating every minute of it. Jackson fell in love with another young citizen of Topeka, a young white woman who Corley himself fancied. Corley sent one of his deputies after Jackson, and Jackson escaped, leading us to the start of our story. The two continue through the swamp, escaping a giant snake, only to come face to face with the enraged Corley, who informs us that Jackson left out a part of his earlier story, the part where Jackson stabbed Corley's deputy to death, and now Corley intends to see that Jackson pays with his life. Conflicted, 
the Man-Thing decides to lead the two humans to their tableau, and as Jackson begs the Muck Monster to return and help him, the sneering Corley guns him down. As his almost friend lies dead in front of him, the Man-Thing rounds on the racial epitaph spewing Corley, reaching out with his misshapen mandibles, as Corley finds out too late that all those who know fear burn at the touch of the Man-Thing. So this was a comic. Yeah, this was a comic. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say this first. The absolute best thing about this issue is the art by Jim Starlin and Rich Buckler. Yep. The artwork does not slouch in any way, shape, or form. It is gorgeous. The cover is gorgeous. Um, every single panel with the man thing in it is perfect. Including the first picture on the page, which is just like a huge picture of the man thing watching through the branches, this car chase, and it's a gorgeous look at man thing. Yeah, yeah. And what I really appreciate about this issue is the way that the man thing's relatively featureless face is allowed to be sort of expressive in its own way. Yeah. Especially the eyes. And I think one of the nice things about the way Man-Thing's face is set up is he does have these big eyes, which you can kind of read anything into. Right. Now, they, they kind of hold your hand a little bit in this issue where there are a couple of moments where you get close-ups of the eyes and then images are drawn into the eyes to sort of give you some sense of what he's thinking about. Right. At one point, he gets the Punisher logo. Yes, yes. Um, that's. Uh, in fact, for a second there, I thought, well, maybe that's the problem. If people just weren't so afraid of him, they could get close enough to realize that he communicates through emojis in his eyes. <laughs> oh, that's that's good. <laughs> okay. But that that is purely the visuals i think we probably do need to talk about the substance of the issue here yep okay i won't i'll start out by saying i think this is a good issue i think it is a well-intentioned issue right i i i don't think i think steve gerber is maintaining the running start he had with last issue yes and and I actually applaud Gerber for taking the, a fairly risky chance across the issues we've read so far in sort of wanting to use a monster comic as a way of digging into some social issues. Right. For instance, in the last issue, they referenced going to a head shop. Stan mm-hmm. Lee would not have referenced going to a head shop. Right. Although I think it's worth noting that um, I mistakenly stated that Steve Gerber was one of those Marvel writers back in the day going around town getting all kinds of mentally expanded. Apparently Steve Gerber was a famous teetotaler. I I think I've read that, yeah. And so, yeah, so what we have here is Gerber sort of doing his best in the early 70s to 
engage with the problems of racial violence in the American South. Yeah, but the racial politics on display here are problematic as heck. Yes. Okay. I will give Gerber kudos for this showing a interracial romance or at least implying right. an interracial romance right. and showing the fallout that could come from such a romance in the American South in the 1970s. Right. That being I, said, go ahead. I guess my problem with the issue is the moment where the man thing turns his back on the situation. Yep. Because what that seems to suggest, both on the part of Man-Thing and maybe on the part of the author, is and maybe an understandable misunderstanding given the time period, but there's no recognition of the institutional power dynamics at play. Because the Man-Thing turning his back there suggests a sort of both-sides-ism that neither side is right, that they both have issues they need to work through. And that's illustrated really well on page 15. Like, we may not... Because you have Man-Thing standing in the center of the bottom page, and we've got Jackson's face on one side, Corley's face on the other, and their expressions are mirrored, implying, you know, really, they're not that different in how wrong they are. But, continue your point. Yeah, well, and, and so... Sure, both of the specific men in this scene are angry, but then the question becomes whose anger is actually justified and who is whose is based on the sort of institutional racism that gives one person more power than the other. Because, I'm sorry, the death of Jackson here is straight up unjustified homicide. Right. He is not rushing at Corley. He's actually chasing after the man thing to get him to help. He He's saying, he'll kill me. He's got a gun. And he's shot down. That is right. murder. That any jury... Yes. God, I hope any jury in the United States today would see that, would see that, and they would convict Corley of murder. I hate to say, probably not in the American South in the early seventies, and probably not in America today. Sure, and I guess if there's anything to take from that in terms of character development, is that what we are explicitly told by this ending. Is that Man Thing is not a superhero? No, he isn't. He he's not a protector. He's not someone who exists on that sort of moral spectrum of right and wrong the way the way Swamp Thing does. Um, this is a, a different type of creature. Now he responds to wrongdoing. Like like so once the once the the violence has happened. He, he sort of takes vengeance for it. He, he avenges the death of, of the character that was killed. Mm-hmm. 
but he could have stopped it to begin with. Yeah. And and I don't know if that's a failing of the character or a failing of the writing or both. I just I am left feeling really conflicted about this issue. Extremely conflicted. Like after I read it, I I I talked to you about it after I read it and there's a lot to unpack here. Mm-hmm. The racial politics, the racial dynamics shown in this issue. Uh, yes, it was wrong of Jackson to murder the deputy. But Jackson states the deputy was screaming racial epitaphs at him. He was probably using the N-word. Right. And we also aren't given any sense of what had been done to Jackson up to that point. We're given some sense. We're given a sense of the abuse that the black citizens sure. of the town live under. I, I meant specifically in terms of... So so if he was being taken in or even in some sort of custody, were there abuses? Was there physical violence in addition to the, the sort of... Uh, language being used yeah that i think is less clear yeah it's a it's a it's a hard issue to unpack especially for two white guys like us right no i am feeling not entirely qualified to to unpack this um that's actually I've been feeling unqualified to unpack some things a lot this week, um, and I think we'll we'll get to that a little later. But um, but yeah, it's an interesting issue. It's well drawn. It's certainly trying to engage with big ideas in a way that a lot of other comics were not. Right. And okay, let's talk about that because let's compare where this comic succeeded. Where another comic we talked about this episode tried its hand at philosophy and failed. The Silver Surfer issue. Yeah. Because, you know, you read that Silver Surfer, Surfer issue and you're like, eh? Right. Right. And then you read this man thing issue and you're like, damn. Yeah. And I, I guess what's so... I don't want to use the word unfortunate because that makes it sound like it's a bad comic and I don't think it's a bad comic. It isn't. But but what's short-sighted? What I keep getting what I keep getting hung up on is its inability to really read the the truth of the situation. Right. Despite Gerber's best intentions, He's coming from a white perspective. He's coming right. from a why can't we all be friends perspective. Right. I mean, this is I mean, I it's like This is the all lives matter perspective. Right. It it's it's the white ministers going on TV in the 60s to say that Martin Luther King is protesting wrong. Yeah. That's exactly it. And I think what Gerber doesn't understand and again, I don't want to besmirch Steve Gerber, the man has passed on, and he's an excellent comics writer. 
but he's coming from a white perspective. And again, we're we're podcasting from a white perspective. We're both white guys. Sure. But at the same sure. T- we we have the benefit of a little more hindsight. Yeah. And and that I think probably is help helping us, but I this is not the kind of story I would feel comfortable trying to write. No. And again, don't and to our listeners, we're not saying Jackson was justified to murder that cop. No, no. Because we're not. But what I think I would say is that the institutions in place in that community made that kind of violence all but inevitable. Right. And we're definitely also saying that what Corley visited upon Jackson was not justice. Not justice for his deputy... Not justice for Jackson. And really, despite what the caption says, what the Man-Thing does to Corley is also not justice. I mean, that's it's vengeance. Yeah. But that's not quite the same thing either. No. <laughs> but that's a distinction that I don't know that... Again, without distance, a writer would have been able to make. I don't know. This, this, this is... Really tough, weighty stuff. And maybe not the best discussion for a humor podcast. Huh. <laughs> um, but it is worth reading. I mean, it's, if nothing else, to get a sense of when comics tried to deal with race in a relatively intelligent way, this is sort of what you got at the time. Yeah. And... And on top of that, um, it's got some really gorgeous uh, art by uh, Jim Starlin. Yeah. I'm not sure if Starlin continues with the book, but it it looks great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's 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 Man-Thing. That's Man-Thing. I, I look forward to reading more of it. God help yeah, me. Yeah, I... Um, well, and... That's one thing is that the the sort of episodic format that this book has taken so far does allow for some experimentation with stories. Like he tried this, it doesn't entirely work, but that means he gets to try something else next next issue. Yep. And I look forward to seeing what that is. Right. So, I, I will say, and it, it just one last thing in in the book's favor. While it is problematic in its depiction of racial politics, the depiction of Mark Jackson as a character is leaps and bounds better than any of the Native American characters in the Ghost Rider comic. This is true. On a lighter note, I do want to talk about the letters column. Okay. Because the letter col- letters column is fun. So, I feel slightly redeemed... Because one of the letters writers uh, had the same thought that we did on the redemption storyline from number 10. Mm-hmm. Do you have the letters in your copy? Um, I do. I don't see anything about the previous issue, though, aside from the art. Because <clears throat> um, it's the monster's mailbox. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, we do get an answer to uh, your your musing about ongoing art duties. Uh, 
Jim Starlin leaves the book because he is about to have his hands full with the all-new revamped and revitalized Captain Marvel. Right, which, of course, is going to become a fan-favorite run. Right, right. So so he doesn't stay with the book. No. But it was nice while he was here. Um. Oh, here we go. Uh, it's the last letter. Um, if the art was a disappointment, the story definitely wasn't. Uh, Jerry crafted a little morality play that might be criticized for being too optimistic about its protagonist reformation, but still was excellent. Right. Okay. Yeah, so... With that, you know, we talked about how we had serious doubts about the redemption of the father in that episode. Because he threw away a baby! Right. You you don't... You don't get to undo throwing away a loving a baby. A, 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 a baby that was wanted and loved, and he just chucked it off a bridge. Right. Like, which is not just getting rid of a baby. Like, it's not like giving it up for adoption. Throwing a baby off a bridge is, in, is attempted murder of a baby. Yep. But the other letter that I want to talk about in this one, and this is a great one, um... To whom it may concern, I've recently read an article about a huge, foul-smelling, hairy monster dubbed Momo, Missouri Monster. It, it seems edgy citizens of Louisiana, Missouri have reported seeing this monster, described as having large pumpkin-shaped head, glowing orange eyes, an ape-like growth of hair, large feet, clawed hands, and arms that reach to its knees. This 6 to 12 foot tall creature is believed to be an experimental animal sent to Earth from another planet. Other such animals were sent, seen in the Florida Everglades and near Vader, Washington in 1971. About 50 residents of the town of 4400 claimed to have seen the monster. It was reported of being seen growling at some boys, lifting a small foreign car, and crossing a highway with a dog in its mouth. I believe Momo is Man-Thing. Is it? By the way, the Man Thing series is terrific. And so, I love the response yep. because of how logical it is. The the reason, logically, that Momo cannot be Man Thing, is because Momo was sighted carrying a dog in its mouth, and Man Thing does not have a mouth. That is an extremely logical answer. Mm-hmm. But they go on to point out that both co-creator of the character Roy Thomas and Steve Gerber are both natives of Missouri. Yeah. So I actually went ahead and posted this letter to the Roy Thomas appreciation group on Facebook because uh, Roy's manager, John Cimino had mentioned that Roy would be doing an appearance in Missouri where of course he's from and I was like, okay, well, he should ask about if they still see the Momo. And apparently, uh, Roy's manager, Jolly John, um, decided to just ask Roy directly. So Roy says, what's to explain? It was just a joke, though I have no idea who wrote it. I assume it came from Fear, the early 70s Man-Thing title. Someone sent in a letter about that Missouri monster, of whom I believe I'd heard of at the time, not that I believed in it. So either Steve or perhaps someone else wrote that answer. 
Of course, I had done a little more than help conceive the Man-Thing, since after a bit of discussion with Stan Lee, I had written out a synopsis for the first story, which I had Jerry Conway turn into a script for Greg Morrow to draw. That synopsis somehow survived, and has been reprinted in Alter Ego and elsewhere. That was mostly just a joke, due to the fact that I had helped fellow Missourians Steve Gerber, Gary Friedrich, and Denny O'Neill get into comics industry over the preceding few years. Signed, Roy. <laughs> well, it's nice to hear it straight from Roy's mouth. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's kind of neat that, uh, after all these years, he had some sort of vague recollection of, of that uh, that story. Right, and it's very nice of him to respond to our question. Absolutely. <sighs> okay, I think we can. Should we take another? Should we take another break? Yeah, I think we should take another. I think we need a break after that issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna um, recollect our thoughts and uh, come back with uh, just a little bit of, of discussion to wrap things up. Yeah, we're going to come back with that difficult issue about race and then talk about race in horror films. Stay tuned. We've always loved horror. It's just that horror hasn't always loved us. Black people play a particular role in horror films. First, we weren't in it. We were played by white people. Yeah. We went from maids to pimps and hoes. If there was somebody black, they would be the first to die. Black films hold a mirror up to society, but at the same time give an audience an escape. Her name is Blackula. <laughs> One fellow said to me, you were directing before it was legal. You can be the boss down there. I'm boss up here. Yes, that's history. We've shifted from being the focal point of the fear to being the heroes. <laughs> this would be unheard of 25 years ago. If we can use what we've experienced, we can tell stories that people have never seen before. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, and Tomb Believers, we have a huge announcement for you. Yeah, in fact, we sort of buried the lead on this. Right, we, we kind of did. Sorry, we were just really eager to talk about that Silver Server sh- issue. I know, right? So rewarding, so satisfying. And less fattening. <laughs> so, we here at the Tomb of Ideas are proud to announce that as of this episode, and you may have noticed, we are now part of the Cinepunks podcasting group, or podcast group. That is correct. Um, Cinepunks is a uh, collection of writers and podcasters um, engaged with all different types of uh, culture and art. Um I've written some articles for them in the past. Um, In fact, uh, I had a review that just went live fairly recently. Um, But we are really happy to be joining their collection of of podcasts, uh, including 
the Flight mm-hmm. Stuff, which is their other comics podcast, uh, which is doing they're they're doing a deep dive starting with the very first appearance of Alpha Flight and going issue by issue. If you haven't listened to it before, really great stuff. They've got episode they've got uh, podcasts about movies. They've got uh, in fact horror business is a, another really great one to look for. They've got uh, Black Sun Dispatches, which is a kind of creepy. Twilight Zone-ish, Lovecraftian kind of thing. So uh, we're really happy to be among such good company. We're, we're glad they took us on board. Um, and so you may have noticed, uh, as of this episode, some of the URLs for things might have changed around a little bit. But we're still the same tomb of ideas you know and love. We're just happy to have a little bit more company. Right, so if you're subscribing with the RSS feed, uh, this is going to be the last episode to be released through that RSS feed. If you again, if you're directing, if you're subscribing directly through the RSS feed, this will be the last episode you'll receive. Then we're going to switch over to right. Cinepunks' RSS, um, which will have our own individual RSS feed. And right. of um, if you're through any of the other uh, sort of podcast apps, you're fine. The switchover should be fairly seamless. Um, but but if you are using that direct RSS feed, uh, it, it is going to be switching over. Right. So, um, as part of Cinepunks, uh, we were able to take a look at a brand new documentary, um, which is not explicitly comics related, um, but it is horror and, and somewhat in our wheelhouse, um, and that is the brand new Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. It's a Shudder original doc uh, directed by Xavier Bergen. Um, and by the time this episode goes live, it will already be available to stream. Um, but, uh, but as we record this, it has not yet come out. Right. So, um, this documentary, um, is basically looking at roughly the last hundred years or so of genre films, um, and how representation of African Americans has been handled throughout that time which has meant a lot of caricaturing a lot of exploitation a lot of being pushed to the side um, but also some really important steps forward in the portrayal of african-american characters on screen yeah and as we pointed out in our man thing review we're two white guys so it offers a perspective that I think we don't usually think of when watching horror films. Right. And and one of my favorite things about this documentary is just the breadth of experience that is brought to the table. Um, they've got critics. They've got directors. They've got writers. They've got actors. They've got academics. All talking about these various uh, movies go ranging all the way from the turn of the century, early 1900s, all the way up to the present. Right. And I'm a big fan of film industry documentaries. I love having people talk to me about film. I mean, I absolutely adore the never sleep again documentary, which is what, like five hours, four hours of people talking to me about the nightmare on Elm street series. And I just, Something like that, Watched yeah. that, and it was great. And 
this is nowhere near that as long, but it's no. In fact, it is a breezy eighty-three minutes. Right. I I I honestly could have listened to or I, I could have watched a documentary that was twice as long as this. Same. Because it is really um, well done. It is, and and one of the things that is tricky about documentaries about filmmaking, especially this kind of thing where they're talking about a bunch of different films is it's really easy for it to just turn into a clip show where you're just showing the greatest hits of all these movies and sort of heaping praise on them. It's really easy to fall into that trap. But what this documentary does really well is contextualize. Um, it, it, It certainly leaves room to celebrate because there is plenty to be celebrated in these films, but they're not afraid to go in and critique. And talk about the implications of things. Yeah, like, for instance, again, coming from work perspective, it never occurred to me that King Kong could be a shorthand for a black man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, King Kong and um, the creature from the Black Lagoon both tend to get cited as examples of horror sci-fi being used as sort of racist metaphors and one of the things i like about a documentary is even when it points out where things are problematic it doesn't dismiss the cinematic value of the films it's taking a hard look at yeah it this is it it walks the line of acknowledging the complexity of these films that they're that they're not perfect that they they're flawed because they were coming from flawed times and often flawed creators and yet there were things that managed to take steps forward anyway right for instance a, a film they talk about a lot in the movie and one i like a lot is blackula that's a classic yeah and straight up, Blackula is problematic. It comes from this black exploitation era of filmmaking, uh, where a lot of African Americans were depicted as either being, excuse the term, pimps or hoes. But at the same time, you begin the film with the character who becomes Blackula being articulate. He's having a frank discussion about slavery with Dracula. Right. And it, it, it says, yeah, there are parts of this film that are problematic, but also this film is a joy. Sure. And, and it benefits in that case in particular from having access to archival interviews with William Marshall, who played Blackula. There are contemporary interviews with the director, William Crane. Um, and they're able to talk about sort of just how much they were able to get away with by sort of working in the margins of what the studio expected. Right. And in fact, it is one of the Blackula movies that has the line that, that gets repeated more than once in the documentary that sort of speaks to, I think, the thesis of the film. Um, 
a man has got to see his face. I believe that was Scream, Blackula Scream. That is the sequel, yes. Um, but but that, to me, is sort of what the whole documentary is about. It's about real representation. Not caricaturing and not tokenism, but actually finding space for real characters of color to play important roles in stories. Where we go from, you know, if we... If black people are in the movie, they're the servant to the biggest hit in horror genre within, I think, the last five years being a film with a African-American protagonist that directly addresses racial dynamics. And, of course, that being Get Out. Oh, yeah. Yes, and and a lot of love and attention is given to Get Out, and deservedly so. It sort of bookends the movie. We get a little bit at the beginning, and then a lot more at the end. Um, and it really does sort of play like a kind of culmination of a lot of the issues that get discussed up to that point. Um, there's a sense in which it plays as a kind of subversion of some of the tropes that the other films had dealt with it's it's kind of uh jordan peele even describes it as kind of an answer to the night of the living dead um in which you have the one uh black character also surrounded by white people right and i think and he addresses of course everybody knows that in the original script for get out the main character gets arrested at the end yes and they kind of had a second thought about that when they were making the movie and i honestly think that's their right as i point out the documentary that is the better decision yes i agree having having watched the alternate ending on the blu-ray they made the right choice. And guys, I'm sorry if you've not seen Get Out yet. First off, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Spoilers. Spoiler warning. Sorry. 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 But seriously, if you're a horror fan and you haven't watched Get Out yet, go watch it. It is good. Yeah. If you have not watched Get Out yet, get the hell out <laughs> right now. It, 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 don't even think about it as like a black white film. I know that's a, lo- a lot of how it got promoted at the time and a lot where a lot of tension goes it is a horror film made by a hardcore horror nerd yes it and it is it is smart and it is well written and it's sometimes funny and it's sometimes terrifying and it deserves every bit of praise that this documentary gives it right so um even though you're about two years too late go see get out (laughs) um and uh, we also get some teases of some things coming up. I think there is a bit of a clip of Jordan Peele's next movie, Us. Right. Um, I thought I caught a couple shots of that. Um, we also get a bit of a teaser of uh, the uh, sequel to Tales from the Hood, the uh, horror anthology. Yep. Um, so, so this is not just a documentary that looks backward on the history of horror but it is also looking forward toward the way black representation is going to be going forward and we get a little bit of a glimpse at jordan peele's Candyman reboot 
Right, right. There are suggestions of where that could yeah. go. Um, and then this is this has nothing to do substantively with what the documentary is about, but keep watching through the credits because you get a little bit of uh, Ken Forey from Dawn, the original Dawn of the Dead and Keith David from everything <laughs> um, singing Monster Mash. <laughs> Man, I could I could listen to Keith David do anything like and i would give anything to have the clip of them singing that entire song yeah again i would give anything to listen to keith david read the phone book so this is true this is true um but yeah horror noir fantastic documentary um we've just barely scratched the surface here i also wrote up a review for cinepunks so um by all means check that out as well but uh, by the time you hear this, the documentary will be available to stream on Shudder. Um, if you don't have Shudder, it is one of the best streaming services out there for fans of horror. Um, it is a extensive, highly curated collection of horror films. They update things every month. They're constantly adding new categories and recommendations. They are the new home of Joe Bob Briggs. Yep. And it is a subscription that is very much worth the money. Definitely. And in fact, as of this month, to coincide with the launch of Horror Noir, um, several of the films discussed are actually being added to their uh, catalog. Uh, So they're getting the original Tales from the Hood. They're getting The People Under the Stairs. Um, They're getting... uh, I'm blanking on some of the others, but several of the films that are being discussed in the film... They are also making available to stream, which is which is very cool. Extremely cool. So yes, watch horror noir. You'll enjoy if you like the kind of stuff we've been talking about on this podcast. I think you'll like this stuff. And go check out Cinepunks. Yes, please do. Not just my review either. They write other good stuff too. Exactly. So Trey, I think we have once again brought ourselves to the end of another fine episode of tomb of ideas indeed Uh, in fact now is probably a good time to stop because if we keep talking about horror movies and not horror comics gravely might come down and punish us right so we'll see you next time where we'll be talking about tomb of dracula number seven monster frankenstein number two and werewolf by night number four see you then bye You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior! <laughs>